picture it. Sicily, 1922. I'm Christmas Day. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle bells. And now, on with the opera. Let joy be unconfined. Let there be dancing in the streets, drinking in the saloons, and necking in the parlor. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another fun and exciting episode of Killers, Cults, and Nutjobs 2.0, where we cover all crime. I'm, as always, the great white snark, Scotty J. Seated across from me is the lovely, twisted, and apparently tired Monica. Hi. That even came over. <laughs> you don't have the energy today. We're we're continuing with our Christmas can or Christmas cannibal. That'd even be a better uh, yeah. That'd, that'd even be a better one. Um our things cannibal. We're continuing with our our tradition of the Thanksgiving cannibal, but before we clicked it on, we were talking about uh as many of you know, or have probably guessed going into the stores already, they're playing the Christmas music. And I work for a big major um, retail chain in the Midwest. And I don't know who's singing these Christmas songs, but they're not artists. They, they, they sound whiny. Because today I heard... For some reason, we have on a loop um, whoever it is singing I'll Be Home for Christmas and, and they're whiny as fuck about it. And then someone's singing um, uh, I can't I, I've heard the song before, but I can't think of it. It seems like she's screaming the lyrics. And I, I it, I'm almost half tempted to download Shazam on my phone. And, oh, yeah, and then just right. That is this. He's like, who's killing this song, Shazam? But you were telling me about the, the guy who played a Bob Dylan tape at Walden's. Yeah. Yeah, like a quarter century ago, but yeah, well, more than that now. Like right. I, I, but, but it was every it was the same tape and it was all the time, and it was just it was the worst. That was torturous. Well, unfortunately, or fortunately, I have not heard the Banshee awaken yet. But if if I ever become president, I am signing an executive order that it'll be illegal to play that song, except in cases of torture. Because anybody who has worked retail has heard Mariah Carey sing. All I want for Christmas is you. Repeatedly. For two months. And it, it is psychological torture. I almost have to talk to my therapist next week about it. Although I could I could go with a Bob Dylan singing Frosty the Snowman. Frosty the Snowman with very heavy sorrow. Just stop. <laughs> Was it and also well, today was the fifty first anniversary of John List, like right? Yeah, um, 
the of his family. Man, that was a fucked up case. I know I shouldn't be swearing, but that that case was messed yeah. up. We're we're gonna cover him. We are. Yeah, that's probably the first true crime case I ever heard of. Um, I'm trying to remember. It's like semi-local. Oh, and they're also they're buried at the same cemetery as Whitney Houston. Oh, nice. And Bobby Christina. So yeah. Houston zero, bathtub two. Yep. You know what I just saw today at work on uh we, we had a big display in, in the aisle for like um like deodorant. Packages you can get your your significant other for Christmas. They had a Whitney Houston bath set, and I was about ready to take a picture and say too soon. Yeah. Why did you send that to me? I will when I go to work tomorrow. Thank you. Yeah. And I'm going to put it up on the Gilbert Godfrey Amazing Colossal Mm -hmm. Listener Society. Just the picture and just say too soon. Mm Hmm. Now I want to do Whitney Houston bathtub jokes. I think she was messed up before she met Bobby. I think he just probably pushed her over or something. What? I remember seeing something about those two. And Bobby Brown actually said, you can't take two kids one generation out of the ghetto and give them money. Oh, yeah. Because she was just as ghetto as he was. Mm-hmm. Kiss my black ass. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's get back into Jeffrey Dahmer, folks, because what would Thanksgiving be without the KCN tradition of the Thanksgiving cannibal? We got to find a Christmas killer this year. There's enough of them. Right. But I mean, you know, we did we do the guy with the flamethrower last year? Yeah. Yeah, I love him. <laughs> Seriously. The, the, I mean, granted, the dude murdered his in-laws and family and everything, but man, Christmas, Santa Claus, flamethrower? But then he imagined it, like, burn himself, too. So there we go. Right. Now, there's a couple of cases that I've heard on Small Town Murder that I want to dig into for us. Mm-hmm. Um, one was like the very first guy the FBI profiled back in the fifties. Oh, this this dude. This dude was something. Uh, all right, back to Dahmer. After his return to Ohio, he initially lived with his father and stepmother because that's that's what you do when you come home from the military. You go live with your folks for a little bit, be a burden again. And he insisted on being delegated numerous chores to occupy his time while he, while he looked for work. Industrious, I like this. But he continued to drink heavily, and two weeks after his return, he was arrested for drunk and disorderly conduct. He was fined 60 bucks and given a suspended 10-day 10 10 day jail sentence. My family would have just slept it off. His father tried unsuccessfully to wean his son off alcohol. Okay, this I, I'm going to say this right now. 
because I have a cousin in, in rehab for alcoholism. And you've got to hit rock bottom. I mean, rock fucking bottom. Before you you even begin to contemplate um, rehab. I mean, I chat with her occasionally on Facebook. and She's doing good. She She's away from all the drinking, which is good for her. But she doesn't know if she wants to go back to her home area because everything's associated with drinking. It's like me here, you know, I love my home area, but there's too many memories of Terry and all the girls I've dated from this area that just kind of kind of turned it into a, a nightmare land for me. That's why I'm going to move out east and find a pretty woman. The roll in your eyes now. <laughs> if only you could see this. One day I'm gonna really. Oh no, I deleted all. Yeah, I deleted the files. But if I could just, I'm gonna save a bunch and just piece together Monica's eye rolls and put them up on the on the Facebook page. Yeah, best outtakes, right? <laughs> right, Monica eye rolls. <laughs> the title will be Monica eye rolls at whatever Scott says. <laughs> <laughs> in December of 81 he and his stepmother sent him to live with grandma in West Alice, Wisconsin no because in Wisconsin there's only two things to do drink and become a okay well he's already got one of the things down pat and eat cheese well right but and go to the Dells yeah and if you can really, and if you can get there during the season, you go to Baraboo to the Circus World Museum. Because the Wrinkling Brothers are from Baraboo. Wrinkling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus proudly presents the greatest show in the world. <laughs> Those are the guys who work the midnight shift to get the tickets to the circus, take their kids there, and they pass out five minutes into the show, you know. Then wake up when like the lion starts mauling the lion tamer. I've not seen that yet, but yeah. So his grandmother was the only family member to whom Dahmer displayed any affection. They hoped that her influence plus the change in location might persuade him to quit drinking, find a job, and live responsibly. And you have such big hopes for your kid. Aren't you so darling? Initially, his living arrangements with Grandma were harmonious. He accompanied her to church, willingly undertook chores, actively sought work, and abided by most of her house rules, although he continued to drink and smoke. In early 82, he found employment as a phlebotomist at the Milwaukee Blood Plasma Center. He held this job for a total of 10 months before being laid off. That's a record. He remained unemployed for over two years, during which he lived upon whatever his money Grandma gave him. Shortly before losing his job, he was arrested for indecent exposure. On August 8, 1982, at the Wisconsin State Fair Park, he was observed to expose himself on the south side of the Coliseum in which 25 people were present, including women and children. 
For this incident, he was convicted in fined 50 bucks plus court costs. In January 1985, he was hired as a mixer at the Milwaukee Ambrosia Chocolate Factory, where he worked from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. six nights per week with only Saturday evenings off. Shortly after Dahmer found this job, an incident occurred in which he was propositioned by another man while sitting reading in the West Allis Public Library. The stranger threw Dahmer a note offering to perform fellatio on him. Although Dahmer did not respond to this proposition, the incident stirred in his mind the fantasies of control and dominance he had developed as a teenager. And he began to familiarize himself with Milwaukee's gay bars, gay bathhouses, and bookstores. He also stole a male mannequin from a store, which he briefly used for stimulation, until his grandmother discovered the item stowed in a closet and demanded that he discard it. Jeffrey, what's this in the closet? You, you know, that's just, a, that's just a bad thing, Jeffrey. You're going to go to hell for that. By late 1985, Dahmer had begun to regularly frequent the bathhouses, which he later described as being, quote, relaxing places. But during his sexual encounters, he became frustrated at his partner's moving during the act. Following his arrest, he stated, quote, I trained myself to view people as objects of pleasure instead of as people. For this reason, beginning in June 1986, he administered sleeping pills to his partners, giving them liquor laced with sedatives. He then waited for his partner to fall asleep before performing various sexual acts. To maintain an adequate supply of this medication, he informed his doctors he worked nights and required the tablets to adjust to that schedule. After approximately 12 such instances, the houses administration revoked his membership and he began to use hotel rooms to continue this practice. You know, I I didn't know bathhouses were still active. Well, that was like was the 80s? early 80s. Maybe like 80s, but still. I mean, I remember taking um, the L train, the Metro, from University Park up to um, well, the Van Buren, the Van Buren um, stop is the last one on that line going into mm -hmm. Chicago. And in some of the South Chicago suburbs and neighborhoods that the train passes through, I remember seeing a building that was still had it chiseled in there, Turkish bathhouse. Yeah. Yeah, just the strange shit, the, the strange yeah. things you see on the train, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of course, on one train ride, me and my friend saw two guys in nice black cars out in an industrial park talking in broad daylight, so we figured there was a mob. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, it's Chicago and the mob, they go yep. together. Uh-huh. I've been trying to find books on uh, the Philly mob. There's some of them. I mean, they haven't really, there hasn't been anything really happening there since, like, the 90s. But... Right, but I remember seeing one of the guys on uh, Boardwalk Empire. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, William Forsyth played them. I, the name's escaping me, but he ran he ran it out of a butcher shop. Well, there was a, there was a I mean, we I mean we're going to cover one of them 
I think when um, St. Patrick's Day rolls around, because Chicago is heavy with Irish mob. Yeah. And one guy actually ran it out of a flower shop. And he also made money by selling floral bouquets to mob funerals. Of course, I think he's buried. Well, right. It's a win-win, but I I think he's buried in the same cemetery Capone's in. Probably, because that's the same way. Which is right down the street from the um, Veterans Hospital. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to take you to that one. I also want to take you to the one that's got the uh, Confederate mass grave from uh, Camp Douglas. Mm. I'd like to see that one. Shortly after his bathhouse membership was revoked, he started scrubbing up at home. And now he read a report in a newspaper regarding the upcoming funeral of an 18-year-old man. He conceived the idea of stealing the freshly interred corpse and taking it home. Ew. Ew. According to Dahmer, he attempted... Well, plus, to also, all the protection they have now, too. Sorry. What? But, like, the, the outer, the concrete vault, too. They oh, have yeah. That. Oh, yeah, so they got the vault. It's not as, yeah, it's not as easy as oh, he was thinking of that anyway. Well, no. I mean, I think they started, and and um, once I finally get, get around to writing that proposal for uh, Grave Watchers... Uh-huh. I think they started doing those vaults to prevent grave ro- grave robbing. Yeah, and by, I mean by that time they've been around for a long time anyway. Oh so yeah, thinking they're just going to go in and just right. Yeah, it's like please. Right, I just um, I was like maybe I, it was like eighteen eighty six, yeah, you know, or where you know around there. But. Right, I know. Um, I I had to take my mom into town for something a couple of days ago. And we drove past the Catholic cemetery and they were interring somebody. And yeah, we they were putting the um the vault lid on top of yeah. on top of them. So yeah. You're not gonna get, you know, those are concrete. By yourself and all and they, yeah, they need machines to actually put that stuff in yeah. and those, yes. Yeah, because the vault company was there. Yeah, putting the, the putting the vault in and you know, you know everything. So you ain't getting through that. Mm-hmm. Now, according to Dahmer, he attempted to dig up the coffin from the ground, but found the soil too hard and abandoned the plan. Yeah, if the soil's giving you problems, like the rest of it's not going to go easy. Right, and I, I'm you know you well nowadays they have a backhoe that digs the uh, digs yeah. the six foot and. And puts the dirt on it. Yeah. It's not done. It's not done by hand anymore. Yeah. If it was, I'd be out there with my father digging <laughs> cemetery holes. Of course, knowing me, I would start sounding like Igor out there. Yes, master. Oh, we're going to get a good one for the experiments tonight, Master. Watched way too many horror movies as a kid. Oh, who's ever brave enough to marry me again gets all this horror knowledge. 
<laughs> on September 8th, 1818. You see, now you got me scooped. Yeah, oh, that's my bad. He <laughs> <laughs> time traveled. He found his first corpse. Come here, 100. <laughs> on September 8th, 1986, he was arrested upon a charge of lewd and lovicious behavior. For masturbating in the presence of two 12-year-old boys as he stood close to the Kinnikinick River. He initially claimed he had merely been urinating, unaware that there was witnesses, but soon admitted the offense. I'm sorry, if you've got 12-year-old boys standing there watching you tug one out, they know what it is because they probably experimented by this point. So you can't sit there and no, you, you can't write that off as taking a pee in the bushes. The charge was changed to disorderly conduct, and on March 10th, 1987, he was sentenced to one year of probation with additional instructions to undergo counseling. On November 20th, 1987, Dahmer, at the time he was still living with grandma in West Allis encountered a 25-year-old man from Ontonagon, Michigan, Stephen Tumoy, at a bar and persuaded him to return to the Ambassador Hotel in Milwaukee, which is Algonquin for the good land, where Dahmer had rented a room for the evening. According to Dahmer, he had no intention of murdering him, but rather intended to simply drug him and lie beside him as he explored his body. The following morning, however, he woke to find Tumoy lying beneath him on the bed, his chest crushed in and black and blue with bruises. Blood was seeping from the corner of his mouth, and Dahmer's fist and one forearm were extensively bruised. He stated he had no memory of having killed him, and later informed investigators that he could not believe this had happened. To dispose of Tumi's body, Dahmer purchased a large large suitcase in which he transported the body to his grandmother's residence. One week later, he severed the head, arms, and legs from the torso, then filleted the bones from the body before cutting the flesh into pieces small enough to handle. Dahmer then placed the flesh inside plastic garbage bags. He wrapped the bones inside a sheet and pounded them into splinters with a sledgehammer. That'll work. (sighs) The entire dismemberment process took Dahmer approximately two hours to complete. He disposed of all of Toomey's remains, excluding the severed head in the trash. For a total of two weeks following Toomey's murder, Dahmer retained Toomey's head wrapped in a blanket. After two weeks, Dahmer boiled the head in a mixture of soil lax, which is an alkali-based industrial detergent, and bleach in an effort to retain the skull, which he then used as stimulus for masturbation. Eventually, the skull was rendered too brittle by this bleaching process, so Dahmer pulverized and disposed of it. Following the murder, Dahmer began to actively seek victims, most of whom he encountered in or close to gay bars, and whom he typically lured to his grandmother's home. He would drug his victims with trazolam, or to Mazapam, before or shortly after engaging in sexual activities with them. Once he had rendered his victim unconscious with sleeping pills, 
He killed them by strangulation. Two months after the Toomey... Dahmer encountered a 14-year-old Native American male prostitute named James Baxtator. Dahmer lured the youth to his home with an offer of $50 to pose for nude pictures at Dahmer's West Alice residence. The pair engaged in sexual activity before Dahmer drugged Baxtator and strangled him on the floor of the cellar. He left the body in the cellar for one week before dismembering it in much of the same manner as he had with Toomey. He placed all of Doc's Tater's remains, excluding the skull, in the trash. The skull was boiled and cleansed and bleached before Dahmer found that it, too, had been rendered brittle by the process. So he raised his skull two weeks later. Hey. I'm not going to mention it, but I, I had a, a nice Native American name for uh, young James. What? Yo, it was, it was called uh, James uh, Sucking Cock. <laughs> Again, yeah, it, it's been a it's yeah. been a rough day. I'm not I'm not completely on my game with this one. Yeah, and that's just mean. Remember, we can make fun of. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I remember reading somewhere that, like, okay, all these great American or Native American names we read in the books, like you know, Black Black Elk and um, Roman Nose, and all these. Well, they're actual. Actual Native American names mean nothing like that. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's like, you know, Coyote Vagina or, or something else, you know. The, th- that's what the translation means. The white man just went, no, that don't sound good. Roman Nose. Uh-huh. Black Elk. White man. Messing things up since uh-huh. forever. That, that, that's a that's a running running joke on the um, on the dollop is like when they do a story that involves like a Native American or Aborigine when they're in Australia is like don't tell the white man mm-hmm. the white man will mess it up. On March twenty fourth, nineteen eighty eight, Dahmer met twenty two year old bisexual man named Richard Guerrero. It would have been so funny if it was Richard Gere. Oh, my God. I could have had so many jokes about that. Now, he met him outside a gay bar called The Phoenix. Dahmer lured Guerrero to his grandmother's residence, although the incentive on this occasion was 50 bucks to simply spend the remainder of the night with him. He then drugged Guerrero with sleeping pills and strangled him with a leather strap with Dahmer then performing oral sex on the corpse. God, man. Necrophilia is something I can never, I mean, I, I've read enough stuff about it. I just, I just can't wrap my head around it. Yeah, well, Kevin, well, Bundy, like, like Gacy, I can't, like, if he, as much, though. But no, I, you know, I just think of, you know, when I was married, 
that you know. Close you want to get right. There's about as close. You know, maybe a couple ex girlfriends thrown in there and in, into the mix. Yeah, that's just like. I I I don't understand what would possess a person to want to sleep with the dead. Even if somebody else has all this other stuff, it's like again, yeah. Right. I mean, I remember hearing stories about guys wanting who were trying to pay the uh, L.A. coroner so they could sleep with Marilyn Monroe's body when she died. Oh, yeah. 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 It was like long enough ago that they've guys thought they could get away with that. But, I mean, try that now. You'd be like rusted so fast, even just right. But but still, the idea that Marilyn Monroe. You know, sex symbol, actress, whatever you want to say about her, he dies. Mm -hmm. And then you got a guy showing up at the coroner's office. Hey, I'll give you 50 bucks if you let me have five minutes with her. Yeah. Like... that That's not even bragging right material. Mm -hmm. Now, bragging right material would have been if she was alive and you managed to sleep with her. Mm-hmm. Because if that had happened to me and I had met Marilyn Monroe and, you know, had been able to do that, oh, I'd be bragging about that. To my, I would want that on my tombstone. That'd be your last words. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My last, last words. And, yeah. You know, I'm laying there on the deathbed. I got my, got my wife, got my kids, grandkids around me. Dad, any last words? I slept with Marilyn Monroe. Click. Like, yeah, we knew that already. Right? <laughs> like, talk about it every day. <laughs> right. How do you answer the phone like that? Hello, I slept with Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. We only change your name. <laughs> right. I would change my name from Scott Klonowski to I slept with Marilyn Monroe. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and I would do that just to hear him pay, say my name over the intercom at work. I slept with Marilyn Monroe. Uh, call six one one. I slept with Marilyn. Thank you. And knowing my son Alex, he would be the one to go. Yeah, Dad wants that on the tombstone. We need a tombstone big enough for him to, you know. And he he'd want the picture too. <laughs> Before I go in more, my son texted me yesterday. He goes, what fat-ass size shirt are you in now? I was like, 2XY. He goes, I thought so. I was like, well, why do you want to know? Well, apparently Susie's getting me a shirt for Christmas, so they wanted to know what size shirt I'm in. Okay. Um... Dahmer dis dismembered Guerrero's body within 24 hours of murdering him, again disposing of the remains in the trash, and retaining the skull before pulverizing it several months later. It's got to be something in the chemicals of bleach that, that is making the bones brittle. I know there's a way that they can do it for taxidermy. That there's some type of solution that they put it in that preserves the bones. And so, like, when you go to the museum, you can see the skeleton on display, but I don't think it's bleach. On April 23rd, Dahmer lured Ronald Flowers Jr. to his house. However, after giving Flowers a drugged coffee, 
Both he and Dahmer, both Flowers and Dahmer, heard Grandma saying, Is that you, Jeff? Grandma? Although Dahmer replied in a manner that led his grandmother to believe he was alone, she observed that Dahmer was not alone, and because of this, he was not able to kill Flowers, instead waiting until he had become unconscious before taking him to County General Hospital. He's the lucky one. In September of 88, his grandmother asked him to move out, largely because of his alcoholism, his habit of bringing young men to her house late at night, and the foul smells occasionally emanating from both the basement and the garage. Grandma, do you want to know what those smells are? He found a one-bedroom apartment at 808 North 24th Street and moved into the residence on September 25th. Two days later, he was arrested for drugging and sexually fondling a 13-year-old boy who he had lured to his home on the pretext of posing for nude photographs. Dahmer's father hired an attorney named Gerald Boyle to defend his son. At Boyle's request, Dahmer underwent a series of psychological evaluations prior to his up court hearings. These evaluations revealed that he harbored deep feelings of alienation. A second uh -oh. evaluation two months later revealed to be an impulsive individual, suspicious of others, and dismayed by his lack of accomplishments in life. His probation officer also referenced a 1987 diagnosis of Dahmer suffering from schizoid personality disorder for presentation to the court. On January 30th, 1989, Dahmer pleaded guilty to the charges of second-degree sexual assault and of enticing a child for immoral purposes. Sentencing for the assault was suspended until May. On March 20th, Dahmer commenced a 10-day Easter absence from work, during which he moved back into his home. Oh, I bet he, his grandma had a nice talk with him on that one. Now, now, Jeffrey, I don't want you drinking in the basement and bringing home strange young men at night. And please stop eating so much chili because your farting in the basement and the garage is really getting bad. Two months after his conviction and two months prior to his sentencing for the sexual assault, Dahmer murdered his fifth victim a mixed-race 24-year-old aspiring model named Anthony Sears, whom Dahmer met at a gay bar on March 25, 1989. According to Dahmer, on this particular occasion, he was not looking to commit a crime. However, shortly before closing time that evening, Sears, quote, just started talking to me. Dahmer lured Sears to his grandmother's home, where the pair engaged in oral sex before Dahmer drugged and strangled Sears. Closing time. One last call. For Don't run us off me. La, 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 la. The following morning, Dahmer placed the corpse in his grandmother's bathtub, where he decapitated the body for attempting to flay the corpse. He stripped the flesh from the body and pulverized the bones, which he disposed of in the trash. According to Dahmer, he found Sears exceptionally attractive, and Sears was the first victim from whom he permanently retained any body parts. He preserved Sears' head and genitalia in acetone and stored them in a wooden box, which he later placed in his work locker. When he moved to a new address the following year, he took the remains there. Sure, why not? 
On May 23rd, 89, he was sentenced to five years probation and one year in the House of Correction with work release permitted in order that he be able to keep his job. He was also required to register as a sex offender. Two months before his scheduled release from the work camp, he was paroled from this from this regimen or regime. His five years probation imposed in 89 began at this point. On release, he temporarily moved back to his grandmother's home in West Allis. She's gotten tired of his ass by now. Jeffrey, you can't keep doing this, Jeffrey. You need to go and pray to the Lord for forgiveness because the Lord will forgive you for all your sins. Yeah, okay, Grandma. On May 14th, 1990, he moved out of his grandmother's house and into 924 North 25th Street, apartment 213, taking the mummified head and genitals with him. Although located in a high crime area, the apartment was close to his workplace, was furnished, and at $300 a month, inclusive of all bills excluding electricity, was economical. God, I could use a place like that. Within one week of his moving into his apartment, he had killed the sixth victim, Raymond Smith. Smith was a 32-year-old male prostitute whom Dahmer lured to apartment 213, with the promise of 50 bucks for sex, you could you could have talked him into much more than that. I mean, really, 50 bucks? Well, this is, what, 1990, so 50 bucks was probably a good deal. Yeah. Uh-huh. And not that I know what... I mean, around here, we've got what we call polar pop girls who hang out at the... We, we have gas stations here. I don't... You guys have polar pop out there in Jersey? No. Okay, some of the some of the like quickie marts around here, all night gas stations sell this thing called Polar Pop, and they put it in a styrofoam cup, and you can get you know many different sizes, and it keeps the. I mean, uh -huh. I I bought it. It keeps the pop cooler for a while. Well, the Polar Pop girls like to get their cup full of pop, and you can refill it for like a buck. So initially, you pay, pay like a buck twenty for the. For the, the yeah. first one. But each uh -huh. refill after that's a buck. So they stand outside and they drink their pop they drink their polar pop and do their mm -hmm. little stroll. And if you you know, if you don't hit them up by the time that pop finishes, they'll go just refill it and be out there all mm -hmm. night. And the ones around here look like squirrely crack addicts, so I was gonna say, don't they have to like pee then too? <laughs> well, and, and that you can, I mean, you, the one that um I know where they hang out at the most is called the Gas and Wash on Court Street. It's twenty four hours, so if they got to pee, they can just go inside and pee. Management really hasn't said anything about the Polar Pop girls because they do their, you know, they pick up their business and take them elsewhere and they come back, so. I know when I was driving for the railroad, I picked up a picked up a couple guys and they wanted to stop there and get a drink. And mm -hmm. we, I was sitting in the van with one of the guys. And we were watching this girl do her walk. <laughs> and it was summer, so it was nice and warm out. So she, you know, she wasn't freezing or anything. 
Okay. Um, inside the apartment, he gave Smith a drink laced with seven sleeping pills, then manually strangled him. The following day, Dahmer purchased a Polaroid camera with which he took several pictures of Smith's body in suggestive positions before dismembering him in the bathroom. He boiled the legs, arms, and pelvis in a steel kettle with soil, soil, soil axe, which allowed him to rinse the bones in his sink. Dahmer dissolved the remainder of his skeleton, excluding the skull, in a container filled with acid. He later spray-painted Smith's skull, which he placed alongside the skulls of Sears upon a black towel inside a metal filing cabinet. Approximately one week after the murder of Raymond Smith, on or about May 27th, Dahmer lured another young man to his apartment. On this occasion, Dahmer accidentally consumed the, the drink laden with sedatives intended for consumption by his guest. Oopsie. When he awoke the following day, he discovered his intended victim had stolen several items of his clothing, $300 and a watch. Dahmer never reported this incident to the police, although on May 29th, he divulged to his probation officer that he had been robbed. I'm sure this guy realized who it was. because, Well, and you think, wouldn't he put the drink for the intended victim in a different colored glass? Yeah, or something. But no, I mean, like, this guy realized that how close he got to be being killed oh, by Tom. Oh, you know, afterward, he was like, Yeah. Woo! Uh-huh. In June of 1990, Dahmer lured a 27-year-old acquaintance named Edward Smith to his apartment. He drugged and strangled Smith. On this occasion, rather than immediately acidifying the skeleton, repeating previous processes of bleaching, which had rendered previous victims' skulls brittle, Dahmer placed the skeleton in his freezer for several months in the hope it would not retain moisture. Freezing the skeleton did not re remove moisture, which I don't know I thought that, but... And the skeleton of this victim was acidified several months later. He accidentally destroyed the skull when it, he placed it in the oven to dry, a process that caused the skull to explode. Dahmer later informed police he had felt, quote, rotten about Smith's murder as he had been unable to retain any parts of his body. Quote, it was my way of remembering their appearance, their physical beauty. I also wanted to keep, if I couldn't keep them there with me whole, I at least could keep their skeletons. End quote. Less than three months after the murder of Edward Smith, Dahmer encountered a 22-year-old Chicago native named Ernest Miller outside a bookstore on the corner of North 27th Street. Miller agreed to accompany Dahmer to his apartment for $50 and further agreed to allow him to listen to his heart and stomach. When Dahmer attempted to perform oral sex upon Miller, he was informed, that'll cost you extra, whereupon Dahmer gave Miller a drink laced with two sleeping pills. Here's your extra, buddy. On this occasion, Dahmer had only two sleeping pills to give his victim. Therefore, he killed Miller by slashing his cartoid artery with the same knife he used to dissect his victim's bodies. Miller bled to death within minutes. Oh, yeah. He then disposed or then posed a new body for various suggestive Polaroid photographs 
before placing it in his bathtub for dismemberment. He repeatedly kissed and talked to the severed head while he dismembered the remainder of the body. Oh my God, he was... Don't tell me he was quoting Macbeth. Alas, poor York, I knew him well. Yeah, don't think he was smart enough for that. Right. He would have been like, oh, I ain't got nobody. I ain't got nobody. I shouldn't have done that, but it, it just popped in my head. Dahmer wrapped Miller's heart, liver, biceps, and portions of flesh from the legs in plastic bags and placed them in the freezer for later consumption. He boiled the remaining flesh and organs into a jelly-like substance using soliacs, which enabled him to rinse the flesh off the skeleton, which he intended to retain. To preserve the skeleton, he placed the bones in a light bleach solution for 24 hours before allowing them to dry upon a cloth for one week. The severed head was initially placed in the refrigerator before being stripped of flesh, then painted and coated with enamel. Three weeks after the murder of Miller on September 24th, Dahmer encountered a 22-year-old father of two named David Thomas at the Grand Avenue Mall. Persuaded him to return to his apartment for a few drinks with additional money on offer if he would pose for photographs. Don't do it. In his statement to the police after his arrest, Dahmer said that after getting a Thomas a drink laden with sedatives, she didn't feel attracted to him, but was afraid to allow him to waken, fearing that he would be angry over having been drugged. So, what are you to do in a situation like this? He strangled this member of the body, intentionally retaining no body parts whatsoever. He photographed the dismemberment process and retained these photographs, which later aided in in Thomas's identification. Now, following the murder of Thomas, Dahmer did not kill anyone for almost five months, although on a minimum of five occasions between October 1990 and February 91, he unsuccessfully attempted to lure men into his apartment. He regularly complained of feeling, feelings of both anxiety and depression to his probation officer throughout 90, with frequent references to his sexuality, his solitary lifestyle, financial difficulties, and shortly before Thanksgiving, his apprehension regarding meeting and facing his father and younger brother. On several occasions, Dahmer referred to harboring suicidal thoughts. In February of 91, Dahmer observed a 17-year-old named Curtis Strader standing at a bus stop near Marquette University. Now, according to Dahmer, he lured Strader into his apartment with an offer of money for posing for nude photos. Don't do it! With the added incentive of sexual intercourse, he drugged Strader, cuffed his hands behind his back, then strangled him to death with a leather strap. He then dismembered Strader retaining his skull, hands, and genitals, and photographing each stage of the dismembering process. Less than two months later, on April 7th, Dahmer encountered a 19-year-old named Earl Lindsay walking to get a key putt. Lindsay was heterosexual. Dahmer lured Lindsay to his apartment where he drugged him, then drilled a hole into his skull through which he injected 
hydrochloric acid with a baster. According to Dahmer, Lindsay awoke after this experiment, which Dahmer had conceived in the hope of inducing a permanent, unresistant, submissive state, saying, quote, I have a headache. What time is it? Unquote. In response to this, Dahmer again drugged Lindsay, then strangled him. He decapitated Lindsay and retained his skull. He then flayed Lindsay's body, placing the skin in a solution of cold water and salt for several weeks in the hope of permanently retaining it. Reluctantly, he disposed of Lindsay's skin when he noted it had become too frayed and brittle. Seems to be a recurring issue. Right. By 1991, fellow residents of the Oxford Apartments had repeatedly complained to the building's manager, Soap Prince Will, of the foul smells emanating from apartment 213, in addition to the sounds of falling objects and the occasional sound of a chainsaw. Principal contacted Dahmer in response to these complaints on several occasions, although he initially accused the odors emanating from his apartment as being caused by his freezer breaking, causing the contents to become, quote, spoiled. On later occasions, he informed Prince Will that the reason for the resurgence of the odor was that several of his tropical fish had recently died and that he would take care of the matter. On May 24th, 1991, Dahmer encountered 31-year-old aspiring model Tony Hughes at a nightclub. He was lured to Dahmer's apartment with an offer of money to pose for photographs. Hughes was drugged into unconsciousness before Dahmer injected hydrochloric acid into his skull in an effort to disable his will and render him submissive, although on this occasion, the drilling and injection proved fatal. On the afternoon of May 26, 1991, Dahmer encountered a 14-year-old Lao teenager named Conorak Synthesimphone on Wisconsin Avenue. Unknown to Dahmer, Synthesimphone, was the younger brother of the boy whom he had molested in 1988. He approached the teenager with an offer of money to accompany him to his apartment to pose for Polaroid pictures. According to Dahmer, Synthesimophone was initially reluctant to the proposal before changing his mind and accompanying him to his apartment where he posed for two pictures in his underwear before Dahmer drugged him into unconsciousness and performed oral sex on him. Before Synthesimophone fell unconscious, Dahmer led the boy into his bedroom, where the body of Tony Hughes, whom Dahmer had killed three days earlier, lay naked on the floor. According to Dahmer, he believed that Synthesimophone saw this body, yet did not react to seeing the bloated corpse likely because of the effects of the sleeping pills he had ingested. On this occasion, Dahmer drilled a single narrow hole into the crown of synthesimophone skull, through which he injected hydrochloric acid into the frontal lobe. He then drank several beers while laying alongside a synthesimophone before briefly falling asleep, then leaving his apartment to drink at a bar and purchase more booze. In the early hours of May 27, Dahmer returned toward his apartment to discover Synthesimophone sitting naked on the corner of 25th and State, um, talking in Lao with three dressed young women standing near him. Dahmer approached the women and told them that 
where I'm just going to call him Jimmy Hong or Jimmy Hong because I'm not messing up that name again, was his friend and attempted to lead him to his apartment by the arm. The three women dissuaded Dominic, explaining they had phoned 911. Get up, get, get, get down. 911 is a joke in your town. Get up, get, get, get. Oh, sorry. Upon the arrival of two Milwaukee police officers, John Balserac and Joseph Gar Gab Gabrish, his demeanor relaxed. He told the officers that Santasimophone was his 19-year-old boyfriend, that he drunk too much following a quarrel, and that he frequently behaved in this manner when intoxicated. He added his lover had consumed Jack Daniels whiskey that evening. The three women were exasperated when one of the trio attempted to indicate to one of the officers, both of whom had observed no injuries beyond the scrape to uh, Santasimophone's knee, and believed him to be intoxicated, that Synthasimophone had blood on his testicles, was bleeding from his rectum, and he had seemingly struggled against Dahmer's attempts to walk him to his apartment prior to their arrival. The officer harshly informed her to butt out and shut the hell up and not to interfere. All according to the uh, police handbook. Of course. Shortly after the arrival of the Milwaukee police officers, three members of the Milwaukee Fire Department arrived at the scene. These individuals also examined Synthasmophone, a guy, I feel so bad about screwing that up, for injuries and provided a yellow blanket for the police officers to cover him. One of the three believed he needed treatment, but the police officers directed the fire department personnel to leave. Again, of course. Shortly thereafter, Officer Richard Rubkin arrived at the scene. He and Gavrish, followed by Balsarek, escorted Dahmer and Conorek to Dahmer's apartment as Dahmer repeatedly commented on the general crime in the neighborhood and of his appreciation of the police. Of course he appreciates them. Here, let him get away with murder. Inside his apartment and in an effort to verify his claim, that he and Conorak were lovers, Dahmer showed the officers the two semi-nude Polaroid pictures he had taken of the youth the previous evening. See? Uh-huh. See? Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. I bet that's exactly how he did it, too. So Balzarek said he smelled nothing unusual. That's going to show what the hell his place probably smelled like. Gabrish later stated he noted a strange scent reminiscent of excrement inside the apartment. This odor emanated from the decomposing body of Hughes. Dahmer stated that to investigate this odor, one officer simply, quote, peeked his head around the bedroom, but really didn't take a good look because he didn't give a crap. The officers then left with a departing remark that Dahmer, quote, take good care of Conorak. This incident was listed by the officers as a, quote, domestic dispute. Upon the departure of the three officers from his apartment, Dahmer again injected hydrochloric acid into Conrack's brain. This second injection proved fatal. The following day, May 28th, Dahmer took a day's leave from work to devote himself to the dismemberment of the bodies of Conorak and Hughes. He retained both victims' skulls. On June 30th, 
Dahmer traveled to Chicago where he encountered a 20-year-old named Matt Turner at a bus station. Turner accepted Dahmer's offer to travel to Milwaukee from a pro- for a professional photo shoot. At the apartment, Dahmer drugged, strangled, and dismembered Turner and placed his head and internal organs in separate plastic bags in the freezer. Turner was not reported missing. Five days later, on July 5th, Dahmer lured 23-year-old Jeremiah Weinberger from a Chicago bar to his apartment on the promise of spending the weekend with him. He drugged Weinberger and twice injected boiling water through his skull, sending him into a coma from which he died two days later. On July 15th, he encountered 24-year-old Oliver Lacey at the corner of 27th and Kilbourne. Lacey agreed to Dahmer's ruse of posing nude for photographs and accompanied him to his apartment where the pair engaged in tentative sexual activity before Dahmer drugged Lacey. On this occasion, he, Dahmer intended to prolong the time he spent with Lacey while alive. After unsuccessfully attempting to render Lacey unconscious with chloroform, he phoned his workplace to request a day's absence. This was granted, although the next day he got suspended. But I'm taking too much time off to dismember bodies. That's why you do it on your day off, dummy. Nothing else to do, right? Right. You know, you you make your to-do list, groceries, pay bills, dismember body. Takes a lot of time, all that stuff. You know, then on your next day off, you dismember. Somebody else. After strangling Lacey, he had sex with the corpse before dismembering him. He placed Lacey's head and heart in the refrigerator and his skeleton in the freezer. Four days later, on July 19th, he received word that he was fired. Upon receipt of this news, he lured 25-year-old Joseph Braidhoff to his apartment. Braidhoff was strangled and left lying on Dahmer's bed covered with a sheet for two days. On July 21st, he removed the sheet to find the head covered in maggots. Well, that's going to ruin it. He decapitated the body, cleaned the head, and placed it... No, he kept it. Placed it in the refrigerator. He later acidified his torso along with those of two other victims killed within the previous month. And that's where we're going to drop off with Dahmer right now. Tune in next week for the thrilling conclusion to Jeffrey Dahmer. Yay! You're right, yay. <laughs> All right, folks, you know where to find us. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast. Yeah. Rate and review. Don't know why. Helps us go up the charts. Not like we, you know, not like we're both sitting here going, yay, we're going up the charts. <laughs> I don't I need to check I, what? I need to check. I don't think we've actually charted yet. Yeah, I kind of oh well. Yeah. Oh, for killers, cults, and nut jobs, I am Scotty J. Say good night, Monica. Good night, Monica.